You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen, amen. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, we love you. And God, we rejoice in you, God. God, as we are in this season of celebrating Christmas and the incarnation, God, I just pray that you, God, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of Christ in it all. God, we, we look to you in awe and reverence and majesty, God. God, we want to know you more. We want you to, to speak into our lives, God. For those in this room who don't know who you are, God, I pray that this would be a, a, a day, a time, a place, God, where they would not leave the same way of what they came in. God, I pray that for all of us, that our hearts would be changed forever because of the glory of King Jesus. God, allow us not to put up our barriers, put up our walls, God, but allow us just to rest in you today. God, I pray that you would allow us just to, just to see who you are. God, as we sing, holy is your name, worthy is your name. God, those are things we know in our minds, God, but I pray that they would, it would go into our hearts as well, God, that we would leave here proclaiming you. So God, we just give you this time. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Good morning, Harvest. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open with me to Titus chapter 3. Uh, if you need a Bible, we have ushers that are going to be coming down the aisles with some, so just put your hand in the air. We'd love to get a Bible in your hand. Um, and if uh, for some reason you don't have a Bible at your home or, or, or have one personally, uh, keep this one. It's our gift to you. We, we want everyone who encounters the glory of Jesus to be able to have a copy of his word. And so, uh, so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn, uh, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. And so last week we started um, our, our Christmas series called Christmas Cards from God. And, and so what we're doing is we're looking at a lot of these one-line verses that appear in Christmas cards, and we're kind of building out the context, building out the, the deeper and the larger meaning of, of what that looks like. And so, um, and so as we're doing this, like growing up, I still remember it two times a year, birthdays and Christmas, right? I run out to the, uh, run out to the mailbox, get my card, rip it open, shake it free of any money checks or gift cards, and then open it quick, see who it's from, thanks, and move on. Never really reading what's the, the message of the card. Now, growing up, I realized that people actually spend time walking through the stores trying to figure out a, a card that has a perfect message, and so often one that we, we skip and, and we miss it. And so it even feels like, a, you know, I know many of us send out Christmas cards this time of year, and uh, it's one of those things to where we can never find a card that says exactly what we want to say. And so... We either send out a card that we don't really like, or we don't send a card out at all, or, or if you join the many of the families who have decided, hey, we're doing our own Christmas card because we can do it exactly what we want, that's great. And so that, that's where we get, but even for me, Brett and I were out um, uh, doing some shopping for our, some of our leaders, and even for some of my student ministry leaders, it took me forever to find a card that didn't say, have a warm holiday, all right? Which, we can have a whole conversation about that in itself. Like, I grew up in Florida. I know what a warm holiday is, all right? Um, not so much about looking at a card, what is this, right? Um, but today's verse is actually one that I've actually seen um, in many cards over, over the, the, I don't know, however many years I've been alive, 33 years I've been alive, all right? I've seen it over and over again. So, look, look read with me Titus chapter 3, verse 4. It says this, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, dot, that's what you see in the cards, right? 
That is true, and that is such a great truth. And this morning, we're going to look at why his birth is my birth. Why the, the physical birth of Jesus allows us now to have a spiritual new life and a spiritual birth. Because that's, that's why we celebrate this time of year. Right? It's, it's a feel-good, that's a feel-good message reading, right? So what do we know from that verse alone, right? Anyone who reads it can say this. God is good, God is loving, God is kind, and he gave us Jesus. Amen. Right? We can read that passage and we go, yes, I agree with that, right? But could you imagine reading the, the, the context of that passage of looking at verse 3 going through verse 7, Right? Look at this. And while it's true, like we, we sell ourselves short when we miss what Paul's actually saying in the fuller context of verse 4. Yes, it's true, but listen to this. Titus 3, starting at verse 3 through verse 7, it says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That changes the narrative a little bit, right? It changes the, the narrative because verse 4 is the feel-good message, but it stands in contrast with, with those who are outside of Christ from verse 3. Right? Could, you, could you imagine for a minute if verses 3 and 4 were printed on your Christmas card? Right? If you watched Home Alone this season, this is the closest to Merry Christmas, You Filthy Animal, I think I could get. Right? But, but let's, let's look at this real quick. Right? <laughs> Merry Christmas, verse 3, on a Christmas card. Merry Christmas, you foolish, disobedient, deceived, ungodly, passion-enslaved, rage-filled, jealous hater who everybody hates. Imagine getting that. Look, I, I might have just wrote like the most reformed Christmas card ever, okay? But, but we're looking at this like, could you, like, for, for all of us, we look at that like, okay, <laughs> right? But we read, the, we read verse 3, but then the, we see the but. We, we see that there's something else going, right? That list should be unsettling to us. Because that's who we once were. If you are in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, that's who you once were. If you're not in Christ, that's who you still are. And we, we look at this, this larger context of this passage. And it should, it should make us pause. Like, how, when, when, when am I foolish and disobedient and led astray? I would say pretty much daily. Right? And we, we look at verse 3, and, and, and in contrast with the verse 4 of like, but in his goodness and his loving kindness, he sent us Jesus. We're, we're, we're standing in contrast to that. We were foolish, and we were disobedient, and we were jealous, and we were envious. And so we look at this. This is why our first point is simply this. We need to see the need for new birth. Simply the, the need for new birth. And so let's look at verse 3. It says this, for, our, for, for we ourselves were once, like were is, is in the past tense, right? So if we say were, like we're talking about the true heart change that happens uh, in summer when they come face to face with the glory of God, right? Like outside of Christ, we, we are still this way. We are disobedient and, and we are deceived, right? We are wicked, we are wretched, we are prideful, we are selfish, we are jealous, right? And, and, and that's an unfortunate thing because the nature of sin, we still fight as believers. We've never come to this place where we're not struggling with sin anymore, 
You come to a place where you struggle with sin less, but you never just completely let go of sin because it's unfortunately part of who we are. But that's not where our identity lies. Our identity is not stuck in those labels. Our identity is in Christ Jesus. But we have to deal with the sin before we can get to the reality of Jesus. We have to deal with the problem before we get to with the solution. Too many of us, we want just the solution without ever having to deal with our problem. We want Jesus and our sin. We want Jesus and our culture. We want Jesus and our world. And I'm going to tell you something. They don't mix well. It's oil and water. And after a while, everything just begins to fall apart. And we see the need for new birth. Why do we need a new birth? Why, why in the world would Jesus even come? Why does it matter that he is good and loving and kind and send us Jesus? Because we were those things. We were those things. And see, we, because of the nature of sin, we, we still fight against it as, a, as believers, like I said. But, but if you don't know Christ, you're still blind to these things. But I'm going to tell you something. The Lord does not want you to be blind to, to these things. That's, that's why he wants you to know Jesus. That's why he sent us Jesus. And so if you're a believer in the room, guess what? This is something that we still need to hear and be reminded of daily. But if you're not someone who's following Jesus right now, this message is all for you and all about you because Jesus is for you. And so this, this verse, I mean, we, we look at this verse and, and it proves to me, it proves to us the exact opposite of what culture teaches us. Culture teaches us that people innately are good. And I think if we, we look at this list, we can we pretty much tell that that is not true. Innately, we are not good. In fact, left to ourselves and left to our own devices, we are not good. We turn to our sinfulness. We actually come to enjoy our sinfulness. And the worst thing is we get blinded to it, and then we don't even know that we're enjoying our sinfulness. This reminds me, you know, the perfect example of this is, is William Golding's uh, Lord of the Flies. It is a perfect picture of the gospel. If you don't know Lord of the Flies, it's a long story short. It's about a group of, of young boys that get crashed, uh, landed on, a, on an island, deserted island all by themselves. And, and they're left to their own devices to uh, end up creating their own governments and all these different things. But what happens is this. They show up and it starts off harmonious. It starts off okay. But then the sinful nature of our selfishness and our pride gets the best of them. And they begin to separate into factions. And at the end of the, at the, end of the book, they end up killing each other. They don't end up together in harmony because left to our own desires, they end up killing each other. And they actually need a salvific uh, person. In this case, it's the army that shows up to, uh, to the, the island and saves them. They need a hero figure to show them what they were doing is wrong. But it's the perfect picture of us as people who need a savior. Because left to our own devices, we are not good. Left to our, our, our own devices and our own personalities, we become disobedient. We become jealous. We become envious. Right? I think this is why, so, so like many years ago, this is why I think our culture became so like just fascinated with like these dystopian realities, like you know all these different books and movies that came out talking about things that aren't meant to be, or talking about a, a broken reality. And they're all every single book, even if you're people are reading Harry Potter, Hunger Games, whatever the books are, right? Like we're looking towards a hero. Every book you ever read is looking towards a hero. Everything points towards a hero because we know that there's something off and something broken. And here's the thing. After the hero arrives and after the hero saves the day, he promises a refresh, a renew, a reset, a restart. Right? And that's what we, we look for. And that's what this passage is telling us. Like You are broken and you need something to reset you. You need something to fix you. 
And so, like, we, we can't even see the, the we can even see the, the, the effects of sin everywhere. And the reality is, it's much easier to, to see it in others than we see it in ourselves. Because we can, we can make excuses and rationalize our own sin. I, will, I was tired. I was stressed. I was hungry. I'm sorry. And then we point at other people's sins so quickly and say, well, you're this, you're this, you're this. And then we demand the grace that they give us that we're not willing to give ourselves. And we don't give other people the grace in it all. And so sin, for some of us, it's all too prevalent in our lives right now. And, and, and we, we, we know it's Christmas but, and we, we all think we're supposed to be like merry and berry and bright and all those fun words, right? And, and we're supposed to be those things, but we're not. And sometimes it's because it's our own sin that's preventing us from coming into relation, like relationship with Christ. And it's our own sin that's preventing our walk with Christ. Sometimes it's the sin of other people that are affecting us. And sometimes it's just the reality that we still live in a sinful, broken cultural world. And we're feeling the effects of those things. And so, what, what does sin do, right? I, I love the list that the Christ-centered exposition series gives uh, about our sin. There's five things that our sin does that we need to look at because we need to address our sin before we get to the reality of Jesus. Here's the first thing. Sin deceives. Sin deceives. It convinces us that our wickedness is good. Your sin will convince you that, that our wickedness is good. It'll be the reason for your sin. The word deceive is a fancy word to say it lies to you. It pulls you away from the truth. It shifts your eyes away from the goodness and the things that matter. And some of us fall into that. We're easily deceived. We're easily pulled astray. We're easily buying into the lie that the, that the enemy has before us and we're turning away from the truth of the gospel and the truth that we so rightly and know hold on to because something else is promised us something and it's not true. Right? God's intention was to be with his creation but now we are blinded to these, uh, blinded to these spiritual realities. Right? We are led astray. We are guided in the wrong direction. And understand when I say guided, it actually means that you are following somebody. I imagine for a minute if you decided that you were going to go on some backwoods hike and you had no idea where you're going, so you, you decided to hire a guide to get you from point A to point B, and halfway through the guide turns around and is like, you know where we're at? And I don't. That's not good. But that's what our sin does to us. It deceives us. It pulls us astray. It guides us in the wrong direction. And even for us as believers, we can so easily buy into that. And we're like, well, you know what? God's way says this, and, but, the, but this way looks so much easier, and it would just be so much better, and it's not. So sin deceives. Here's the second thing. Sin disobeys. Our natural inclination to do things is to do things our way. It's not to look to help. It's to do it our own way. And I shared with many of you before, like, if, I, if something breaks in the house, the first thing I go to is YouTube. Right? Usually I mess it up worse than what it already is before I call someone to come fix it, but sometimes it works out. But again, but too many of us, like, we, we want to YouTube our relationship with God. Like, all right, God, like, I can, just, I can fix it myself. Just, just show me what's wrong, and I'll fix it myself. That is, look at me, when we do that, that is the complete opposite of what Jesus intends with the gospel. The complete opposite. He doesn't say you fix it. He says, let me fix it. Right? Our sin disobeys. God, God has a design for everything. God has a design for your life. God has a design for marriage. 
God has a design for sexuality. God has a design for the church. God has a design for your marriage. I can list things on and on and on and on. God has a design for your family, right? God's design is God's design. He called it rightful and good for a reason. But see, when we want to do things our own way, our sin disobeys, and we actually end up walking away from God's actual design for something that's a fake design or for a design that we think might work, but it's going to, it's going to be crushed under scrutiny. So our sin disobeys. We have no reason for that, right? God has a clear intention and a plan that we rebel against daily. And that's why we need Jesus. Here's the third thing. Our sin dictates. Our sin actually enslaves us. It it controls us. That word dictates, right? It is telling you what to do. And if you've ever been far enough down the pattern of sin, you know for a fact that your sin tells you what to do. It brings up desires that you think are good. It brings up motives that you think are good. It brings up everything in your life that you think is good that is not. And it's telling you and it's dictating to you what the next step is. When we get too far down that rabbit hole, our natural inclination is not to run back to the Lord. It's to, it's to go further down the rabbit hole and hang out with Alice in Wonderland. It, it doesn't, and we get stuck there and all of a sudden we're, we're all in this world of hurt. It makes us Sin makes us feel as if we're free, but we actually become slaves to the sin that we find freeing sometimes. We're never satisfied, and we're constantly trying to feed our minds and our souls with idols. This is, this is our sin. This is how it breaks us down. We, this is us in verse 3. We are led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures. That's who we once were, but that's what sin does. Here's the fourth thing, sin detests. Sin hates holiness. And if you're in sin, you hate holiness. The desire of sin is to hate what is good and to blind us to that reality. Here's the scary thing, church. When you have people who love you enough to graciously and caringly point out sin that's obvious in your life, if our first response to them is get off your holier-than-thou self-righteous pedestal, the problem's not with them, the problem's with us. Because we come to a place where we say, I've got it figured out. You, you, don't, don't worry about, I got my sin figured out. Leave me alone. How dare you tell me that? Because you know, let, let me tell you something about you. Because here's what I'm seeing in you. Instead of receiving and looking at that going, man, is, it God, is God using this person in my life to point me towards him? Or, is God, or, or is this per, am I just going to turn around and, and throw it back in their face? Because us as people, in our sinfulness, when we're stuck in sinfulness, we want to point out the sinfulness in other people. And our sin detests anything good. And here's the last thing. Our sin destroys. Sin, church, will crumble you. It will crush you. It'll take all that we call good and all that we hold dear, and it'll warp it, and it'll break it, and it will enjoy it. And some of you might not have ever experienced sin destroying you or sin destroying something you love, but I promise you, as you walk deeper and deeper into sin, just give it a matter of time because you will experience that reality. See, the the destroying effects can be seen. They're long-lasting. Sometimes they can last generations, right? And this is is one of those things we're supposed to say. we, We know pain. Pain is terrible. All pain is terrible. Whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, whatever kind of pain it is, it's all terrible. But church, look at me. Pain is the reality and the indicator that something is vastly wrong. 
Pain is not normal. Pain is not natural. We feel pain because it's an effect of the fall and an effect of sin. We are, are sinned against and we sin against other people because sin destroys. Right? I know some of you have families where sin has almost tore it apart. And the effects of sin, it almost tore it apart. Even in my own family, the effects of sin have almost tore it apart at times. And even growing up, we, we look at our childhoods and we look at things and we're saying, how did we get to this place? It's because these things, these items of sin, they sit on us and they weigh us and they blind us to the realities of Jesus. And instead of pursuing him, we end up pursuing the sin. But here's the thing. The amazing news here is that, that this, this passage is a picture of who we once were, not who we are in Christ Jesus. Right? And so I look at this passage and I become more convinced that, that actually the good we see in people who are not believers is actually simply the common grace of God that's given to humanity. If we're not innately good and left our own devices, we fall deeper into sin, which I'm convinced of. The grace of God upon us is the goodness of other people. And so when you experience good from someone who's not a believer, that's God's common grace to you in your life. That's not, that's not them naturally being good. That's God's common grace. But in the sin, we are controlled by our sin nature with absolutely no hope of overcoming it on our own. So here's the thing. Even though we know that, we know we can't overcome sin on our own. Even though we know that, it doesn't stop us from trying. What do we do? What's our response? We try harder not to screw it up next time. We try harder not to do the thing that makes you a bad person. We try to fix ourselves. And so we, we often try being a better version of ourselves than what we actually are, but that never works because you end up with a sense of behavior modification and not a heart transformation. You simply want to change the outside appearance that other people look at you and say, good. It's you want to change the outside so your family says, oh, you're doing great. You change the outside so your, your people at work with you, oh, you're doing great. That your family says you're doing great. Your small group is convinced enough that you're doing okay. But really inside, you're falling apart. You know, I'm reminded even when I say that of, of these old like shows, uh, not old shows, but shows that fix up like old cars in the restore and I'm watching these shows, and, and here's, they get a car in, and it looks like it's, I'm like, how are they going to fix that, right? And they somehow, at the end, make it a beautiful product. But here's the thing they do. They don't just don't take off the body, fix the body, paint the body, and send it back out. They completely, from the inside out, overhaul the car. They take the motor and the transmission out. They overhaul all that, all the interior, everything. They take it to the actual base of the chassis, and they start from scratch. That's what we should be doing when it comes to our lives of Jesus, going to him saying, God, here, here's my life, make it new, transform me. Rather than trying to go and buy a car that looks good on the outside and you get three miles down the road and everything seizes up or everything just stops running. Like, that's what we're reminded of when it talks, just that, that's our behavior. Like, we just look good on the outside, but really internally we're nasty and we're falling apart. And so, you know, we, we, we look at this and, and we, we just fall back into the same destructive patterns that got us to the place where we needed to change in the first place. And that's the scary thing, because even for us, church, as believers, we find ourselves trying to do a manual overhaul of ourselves rather than letting Jesus transform us and Jesus overhaul us. And it always becomes something that's completely opposite of what the gospel had ever intended. 
You know, an example of this, right? So we're, we're not meant to be, to be living and dwelling in sin. I think it's pretty obvious as a believer, right? But here, here's the picture of this, an example of what sin looks like. I love, there's a pastor in North Carolina named J.D. Greer, and he says this. He paints the picture of a drowning victim. He says, you and I were meant to breathe air, right? It's pretty obvious because we can't go along without it. We're, we're meant to breathe air. And you can only hold your breath for so long before, if you're in the water, before you have no choice but to begin swallowing that water that you're stuck in. Well, here's what happens. Here's the biology of it all. When water enters your airway, hits your trachea and your vocal cords, they all spasm up. So it doesn't allow water to get into your lungs. But that response of it spasming up actually prevents you from screaming for help. So it's kind of ironic that when you need help the most, your body cannot respond. And in the, in the same way, you and I were created to breathe in the love and the glory of God. And when we no longer are doing that, our soul craves something. And we have to begin to breathe something in. And ultimately, we're not breathing in the glo- love and glory of God. We, we begin to breathe in idols. And we begin to breathe in other things and, and things of sin. And we become slaves to the things that, that are not of God. Because we have to breathe in, it's, it's natural for us. We, we must do it. It's not optional. And so as when we are in sin, we begin to breathe in these things. And we become the slaves to them all. And, and therefore, we see, what we see is people who truly believe that rejecting God's laws is freedom. What we see, ultimately, is people that reject the laws of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, they, they, they declare that as freedom. And that's not true. This is how we get to a place in our own lives where we actually become ultimately about us, where we believe that our beliefs and our opinions and our feelings outweigh the truth of the gospel. And we have to be careful in that because the moment that we start allowing the enemy in our lives to begin to have a foothold in our life that's, that's making us question the truths that are in the scriptures, we must fight back or we will get taken with it. And so we, we see that there's no denying what God has saved us from. And again, if, you, if you're a believer today, that was who you once were. But if you're not, that's who you still are. And I hate saying that, but that's the reality. I wouldn't be doing an honest understanding of this text if I let you leave thinking that you are okay if you're not in Christ. Outside of Christ, you are broken and because of the reality of our sinful condition, that's the only way we can see the importance of his coming in, in our new birth. So here's the second thing. His new birth allows our new birth. His new birth allows our new birth. How do we know that? Because it says this. So here's the wickedness of who you are. Verse 4, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, dot, 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 look, he saved us. Not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Right, so he appeared, he said, like, this, this, that line, those lines, those verses are the exact reason why we celebrate Christmas. Everything we love about the season and this holiday and Christmas, the cookies, the hot chocolate, the family, the stockings, the presents, whatever it is about this season, right, that should come in a distant second to the glory that Jesus has shown himself. And I know we all go, yeah, that's true, that's right, but what does that look like in your family? Are we, are we, lifting and elevating traditions over the glory of Jesus as we sit around the table and talk? Where do we line up our families? Do we teach our families these things? Or do we get just so wrapped up in in the excitement of of the, the secular part of the season that we miss the glory of Jesus in it all? 
And so this is one of those things where, where the sentence changes everything. So we look at the type of person who we were and then from the life that God has saved us from. Like, so he didn't have to do it. That text says he chose to do it. There was no obligation. There was no mandate. Only out of his goodness and his loving kindness was he motivated to save humanity. Out of his own loving kindness. Nothing you've done. I'm from the States. You all know that. But guess what? We have this thing, this phrase running around the States right now called quid pro quo. Right? None of that happened. There is zero things that you could offer to Jesus. There's no one for one. God, I give you this and you, sa- you save me. That's not it. There's nothing. You and I have nothing to offer him, but yet he still saves us. And so I, lo- I love this verses four through seven because in the fullest context, Paul's actually writing one of the longest Trinitarian sentences that describes how the entire personhood of God is actively involved in your salvation. It's not just one component of the Godhead. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all working together in unison to provide you and to show you and to bring you to salvation. And so because of the faith, this is one thing I love in even reading verse four because I always ask the why questions, right? How did he appear? How did, how did Jesus appear? Well, we all know, oh, Andy, it's a virgin birth. Yeah, I get that. But what had to happen in order for that to happen is that Mary and Joseph, a scared couple, probably out of their minds, decided that obedience and faithfulness to the Lord was more important than outward appearance and their standing in society. They decided Joseph could have, in all legal terms, you're pregnant, I don't believe this, but you're a virgin still, so I'm going, to, I'm going to leave. All legal rights. But he chose to stay, and both of them together became faithful in obedience to God. And we look at, in that obedience, we see the faithfulness of God. We see, the, we see what actually happens. We see that Jesus comes onto the scene, and he has a life-altering impact, and their faithfulness to God can be felt throughout all the future, even today. And so this is when I say that we don't know how God will use your faithfulness today for the future generations. So what is God calling us to? What is God calling you to or me to? Now, we know that we're kind of questioning that might not make sense, but we know that we need to follow in obedience and follow in faithfulness in order that God might use it down the line. And you're like, well, Andy, hang on. God's not going to use one person, whatever, in the long down the line. Okay, let's, let's talk about that. Because I know there's a lot of missionaries in the 1800s that left Europe or left the United States, even left Canada, and they went across the water, as we would say, across the Atlantic, and they took the gospel to the nations. And I know for a fact that many people that are what we call the nations can trace their spiritual lineage back to that one person who got on a boat to bring them the gospel. There's entire tribes and people groups that can point back to one person's faithfulness that changed their entire outlook on life, that changed their entire understanding of who God is. And so we sit here and we say, well, God can never use that. God used a faithful couple in obedience to them. God has used uh, missionaries from the 1800s. God could use you. God could use us in such a great way if we would follow through consistently in obedience. Because I look at this, verse 4, like we understand that his birth marks the beginning of his earthly reign and will ultimately lead to his salvific work on, on the cross. And I love this. This passage reminds me of, of the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. 
Because Nicodemus at night comes to Jesus and said, hey, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, Jesus, I, I've heard these great things of, uh, of what you're doing, these miracles, and, and you talk about this birth thing. I, I don't understand that because, like, how can I, like, be born on my mom again? I'm like, I'm huge. Look at me. All right? Uh, and and he, he says, it's not about your physical birth. It's about your spiritual birth. It's not about what you look like on the outside. It's about who you are on the inside, following me, pursuing me. It's about your heart, not your limbs. And this is what I love because we, we often miss that John 3.16 is actually within the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus. And if you've been in church any amount of time, you know John 3.16 is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you not think that the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus himself, fully God, fully man, got the magnitude of what happened in Titus or in, well, back in the gospels, but in this passage specifically? That he appeared, and why did he appear? To save mankind from their sin and that those who confess and believe in him will not perish with everlasting life. He understood the magnitude. He wasn't going around being like, yeah, Nicodemus, I really have no idea what's going on. Like, you, when you figure it out, let me know and we can hang out. He was walking and showing and proving who he said he was. That's a picture of us if we are in Christ. We are radically transformed by the power of Jesus from whom we once were to who we now are from sinner to saint, from condemned to free. And so this is when I say this. For you who are hearing this right now and you know that your identity is in Christ, I rejoice with you. Keep the fight. For those who are in this room who are on the fence and have been for a while and you're still trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, press deeper into his word and he will show himself and prove himself faithful. For those who are here out of a sense of religiosity or a sense of Christmas duty or whatever you want to call it and you've rejected the gospel, I implore you to reconsider because today is not too late. Tomorrow is not, might be too late. We never know that. But as long as there's breath in your lungs, you can still respond to this gospel. And Jesus doesn't put on any limits for you. He just says, I don't, I don't care about your past. I don't care about who you are. I just want you to come to me. Don't worry about cleaning yourself up. Let me take care of that. Don't worry about all this junk in your life. I will take care of that. I will transform you. Don't worry about transforming yourself. You're not going to be able to do it. And at the moment when you think you can, you're able to do it, you're going to fail. and You're going to realize that you're not able to do it. And you have to turn to me anyway. And so, this is what we look at. Don't, but this is the other thing, too. Like, don't think that, that it's Jesus plus my old life. Because if you're trying to hold on to your old life and trying to hold on to Jesus, it's going to be two opposing forces, and they're going to start ripping you apart, and you're going to have to choose which one you're going to cling to. See, he saves you on his own conditions. He saves you to himself. He doesn't save you so that you can just turn around and say, all right, that's nice. I'm going to have Jesus here and compartmentalize my life, and I'm going to have my work here and my, re my, my real life over here. And It doesn't work that way. Because it says that his goodness and his loving kindness had appeared and that he saved us not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own righteousness and his own mercy. He saved us by his own desire. And here's the reality. You and I had just as much to do with the, with the incarnation that we do about our own spiritual regeneration, which is nothing. If you come to me and say, you had a hand in the incarnation, we're going to have a talk, I guess. But that's just the reality. Like, if the Spirit of God is moving within us, we need to respond to him. I love what one commentary writes. It says, God's goodness and loving kindness moved him to save us. His love moved him to save us. His mercy moved him to save us. His grace moved him to save us. And it's not on our own terms. And so what, what Paul mentions here in verse 3 uh, are the things that separates us from God. And, and in them, we're actually spiritually broken and, and, spirit, and, and spiritually dead. And so here's the thing. We know the end point of our physical body, which is in the ground or dead somewhere. 
That's the ending of our physical body. I know that's like the real pick-me-up for the morning, right? But that's the reality. But what's our spiritual reality? Because we just don't have two deaths that we have to deal with. We have, or not one, we have two deaths we have to deal with. Our physical death and our spiritual death. And if you are not in Christ, you are spiritually dead. There is no way, no way you can come to God on your own. And he is sharing this gospel message with you. And so as Christians, we don't hear the, we've arrived. We hear the, we're broken, but we're surviving. We hear we're the broken, but freed. So here's one thing. Here's uh, three things that the, uh, verse four, the incarnation allows us to see. Number one, Jesus comes to make God personal. Jesus comes to make God personal. He is announcing his love for his creation. Why do we show up to parties? right? To be there with the people who are celebrating, right? To be there and be there with someone personally. Look, a card is nice, FaceTime is nice, but there's something much better about being in the celebration in person, right? The interaction is different. Could, could you, some of you guys might have done this. Could you ever imagine, like, FaceTiming at a party? Like, hey, here's everybody. Great. Look at the, no, I want to go left. What? what? No, the other way. No, backwards. Turn around. I want to say, no. okay, forget it. But being there in person you have freedom, and you get to experience life, and you get to be with one another. And there's something different about a physical visit, something different about being physically with somebody outside of a digital medium or a card. I'm with you in spirit. Well, you're still not here. And for some of you guys, that rings a little bit too true because you know exactly what that feels like. You know, we have friends that back in Virginia so that we FaceTime with quite frequently. And there's plenty of those conversations where I, I don't even remember what was said in the conversations. I know we had some laughs or whatever, but whatever. But what I can remember are the times that we're able to meet up and get together. I can remember half the jokes. I can remember who was wearing what. I can remember that I beat them in the board game. I can remember all those different things, right? Because presence changes everything. And when Jesus ch- chose to come and be here, that he appeared, that he's, he not just appeared, but he saved us, he was present with us, right? It was his goodness and kindness and it goes well beyond the weekly check-in. It demanded his life for the sake of sinners. God wanted his creation to know him. So Jesus comes to make God personal. Here's the second thing. Even in our most difficult times, we can know that we are not left alone. We are not left alone. We're not wondering who this God is and even if he's around. We, 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 know, we know because other, others have seen and we've seen because others have known. Talking about Jesus. Jesus was tempted as we are. Jesus suffered as we do. He faced rejection. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was abused. God understands everything about humanity and more. God knows what it's like to feel loss because of Jesus. Because when we see in the, in the Gospels when Lazarus dies, what happens? Jesus wept. But see, we also know what Jesus did is that he raised Lazarus from the dead. What he also knows is that that's not the end, is that we're not alone. So whatever we're going through, we have a, a, a God, we have a Father, we have an advocate who knows exactly what we're going through and exactly what we need in that moment. And here's the third thing. It reminds us that we are not stuck in our sin because God has made a way. Remember verse three, we once were, right? These are the things that, that once identified us. And again, if you're not in Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus, like these are the things that still define you. But God has made a way and we can clearly see in verse five that he's done so and not by anything you've done, by his own mercy. You know, we, we often miss that, that God's ways is not dependent on our own righteousness because according to this, we have none of our own to speak of. It's only the righteousness of Christ. 
It strikes at the hearts of the Pharisees who, who are zealous, who kept the law strictly to look good on the outside. It strikes at the heart of who we are and who play at a type of religiosity, who just want to kind of go through the motions of things that us and, and, and God are good, right? But both are on the outside. They look good, but at the core, they fundamentally reject the entire gospel that he says, right? God has made a way and you have not, and that's the reason why we need Jesus. And so one thing we can tell by the back end of this passage are these things. We can tell that a new birth is evident with new life can tell a new birth is evident with new life. Paul uses two words here showing us how we're transformed, right? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of our spirit, right? This washing is not an external washing. It's an internal washing. It's not a washing that you have to rub off some dirt and then do it again two days later or a day later or whatever else, right? Some of you have kids. It's every five minutes, right? I actually read an article that said Lady Gaga doesn't remember the last time she actually bathed, which is really gross. Um, but even so, we, we think about right? The washing. And we get this idea that it's an external washing. It's not. It's an internal washing. It's not tainted. It's never broken. It's not shifted. It's, it's about Christ. It's about God. He says, once I do it, it's done forever. And we don't need to worry about that. So, so if your excuse today is I'm not good enough, or God can't love me, or I need to fix myself first, that's garbage, because that is not what Jesus has said. That is not who we are in him as well. And the fact that we can't save ourselves strikes at the very core of pride that we all pretend not to have, right? So, again, the word regeneration here, it's only found twice in the Bible, Titus 3 and Matthew 19, 28. And both times it's used, Jesus is talking about the perfected creation that is yet to come, and that is to come. And so in the same way Jesus describes what ultimately will happen to this earth, Paul writes the same thing that happens within our own hearts. We are renewed and reborn. We are new. We're not a fixed version of our broken selves. I want you to hear that. We're completely new. I use this example. When my brother and I were growing up, we lived in Warrington, Virginia for about 18 months. I grew up up and down the East Coast. And uh, my mom had this like little like white uh, ceramic duck swan thing. Nah, we roughed house, knocked it off the counter, as most things do, right? So we freak out. We're like, all right, all right, what do we do, what do we do? So my brother, being eight years older than me, he grabs some super glue, and he starts putting it back together, all right? And after a while, we're like, that looks pretty good, but here's the problem. You can still see all the seams. You can see where it was broken. You can, you can see that it's not really what it's supposed to be. You can tell that we messed it up. It's still the figure of it. You can still kind of tell it together, but it's still just not right. See, for some of us, when we think about Jesus renewing us, we think of that picture that I'm a broken pile of pieces and Jesus takes super glue and puts me back together. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I kind of look the same, but I kind of have some differences, but whatever. That's not the picture he paints. He paints a picture of like, I'm going to the store, I'm buying a brand new one, I'm going back and I'm putting it on the counter. You will never know the difference. That is what Jesus talks about. He doesn't talk about fixing you and your broken pieces and all of a sudden you're like a, a half-mangled mess of what you used to be, but you're still whole. No, it's about a brand new transformation. It's not about trying to fix your brokenness and your broken pieces. It's about being made new. I love the picture here. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says this. When, he, when God's talking about his love for his people, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And I will be clean, I, uh, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and push, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and, be, and to be careful to keep my laws. That's what God does. Those eyes are not me. They're God. That's God speaking to his people. So he does those things. This is the washing and the renewal that Paul is talking about. 
right? It's strictly and uniquely focused on the glory of God. It's not about you. And here's the thing, church. The moment we start talking about I need to or I need to fix or I need whatever, we're already missing that part because we start making it about us immediately. And God's saying it's not about what you can do. It's about what I can do in you, right? And so that's where we begin to, get, we, we begin to look at. So that's the regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says this, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, which means if you're a believer, you have the Spirit within you. The Spirit is poured out on those who are believers. It's not an image uh, of a waiter who is, who is trying to uh, pour, wait, you know, as you're waiting for a drink, they're trying to come over and pour it, and then it gets depleted, and you do it again, it gets depleted, whatever. It's not that. It's one that just never stops. It overflows. It is never ending, right? I use this example that several years ago, I was eating, um, eating Christmas dinner with a bunch of family that came into town uh, down in Orlando, Florida at the, one of the Disney resorts, and I kept on downing water, right? I was like 13 or 14 at the time. I kept on downing water, downing water. Finally, he just got so frustrated, he brought me a, uh, a massive bucket from the kitchen, put a straw in it. And I was like, all right, challenge accepted, <laughs> right? Um, I tried. I tried to finish it, but I couldn't because he kept on refilling it on me. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. So often we're thinking, all right, the spirit poured out. Okay, I, can, I, I depleted. All right, I need more. I need more. No, it's to the, to the fact that it's never ending, always overflowing. We're not wanting to sit here and worry. Like one commentator says this, what God did for those in the upper room of Acts chapter 2, he still does for all believers today. What happened to the day of Pentecost? The spirit descended and it filled the apostles and they were able to speak languages and barriers were broken and the gospel was advanced and he can still do that today. Barriers are crushed and opened up. So God doesn't drip out the Spirit. He pours it out, unrelenting, because now we have the Spirit. We can truly relish the beauty of Jesus. It's the real reality of salvation. And so we, we see this passage, church, and on, on a sense of Christmas, on a sense of understanding what this actually looks like for us, right? Through the work of Jesus, it started in the manger, but it ends in the resurrection. We declared innocent of our sin. Right? Our identity is no longer in sin, but the saving work of Jesus he saved us, he regenerated us, he renewed us, he justified us. He has made us whole. We have victory in him. And it says, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's what I love that he calls us an heir. If you know anything about legal terms and heirs, if you're an heir to something, you're not waiting for something to happen. If you're an heir to something, technically you already own it, you're just waiting for the master to bestow it upon you. And so when we think about you being an heir and me being an heir and believers being an heir to the hope of the eternal glory, right, or the hope of eternal life in this way, right, we are already heirs. We already own that promise. We're not waiting for that promise to happen. We're not sitting around going, like, I wish that promise would happen today. We already own that promise, and we're just waiting for the master to bestow that upon us, whenever that might be. So we're not waiting around trying to figure it out. We already know. And so the passage starts out with, our wickedness, and continues with mercy to mankind through the incarnation, and it ultimately ends in the glorious hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate Christmas because we know about the back end. We celebrate the birth of this God because we know that he truly is God. So we're no longer a needy people. We're no longer a lost people. We are no longer a broken people if we are in Christ because the grace of God has fulfilled you, has forgiven you, and it has found you. Paul Tripp says this, and I love this quote. He says, The grace of the cross is not just grace that forgives and accepts, but grace that also supplies you with everything you need until you are needy no more. I love that passage. Because it all starts at the incarnation. It all starts at a baby 
And outside the, the goodness and the mercy of God, there's no way to truly see how our lives once were. This is why Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? He's saying, Father, I know they think what they're doing is right. I know they think they have it all figured out. But you know what? They don't. Forgive them of their foolishness. Forgive them of their disobedience. Forgive them of their rage. So let us remember the, the reason why we gather with family this Christmas and this, as we celebrate on Tuesday and Wednesday, that we are, we are not just celebrating the birth of a baby, we are celebrating the reality of a God to us. That we are celebrating the reality that this baby will become a man and take on our sins and the sins of the world for those who confess and believe in him. So, um, overall, maybe, maybe putting verse 3 and 4 on a Christmas card might come your way next year, I'm not sure yet, right? Um, but here's the thing, we are wicked, we are disobedient, we are all those things in verse 3 outside of Christ, but know this today, that you are not stuck there, and if you are in Christ, you already know that, and if you're not in Christ, I would encourage you to come talk to me, come talk to one of our elders or other pastors, we'd love to be able to show you and walk you what this might look like in your life, right? So we are broken, but we are saved, and it's all because of Jesus, amen? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. God, we know that you are worthy and worthy to be praised. And God, as we look at one passage that we find on Christmas cards, God, and we just say, yay, Jesus is with us, God. What Paul had intended in that passage is so much deeper than what we could ever think. Knowing that it's, knowing that we, we need to see the reality of our sin, but knowing how good our God is, knowing how great he is, knowing how forgiving he is, knowing that he wants to transform us God, even that he forgives us when he knows that we are rebelling against him, when we are outside God's design, he still is calling us to himself. God, we just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, God. I pray that, that those who are in this room who are trying to figure out what this looks like, God, I pray that you would open their hearts, that they would, they would see you clearly and truly, that they could stop trying to do it all themselves, that they could stop trying to fix their own lives, God, because it's not going to happen. It's going to lead them further into brokenness and further into sin. But God, that you would just show them and show us that you truly are glorious, that you are Savior, that you are saving still. So God, as we celebrate this Christmas season, God, as we look at one verse on a card, God, we know that reality, but God, let us experience that reality all the more. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.